Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. If I haven't uh, been able to greet you that way yet, Happy New Year. It's good to see you all. You're looking warm. Bless the Lord. Uh, my name is Andrea. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. Uh, welcome. I am so grateful to be worshiping with you this morning. So glad you're joining us uh, both here in Minor and on YouTube. Hi out there. I think you also probably look warm. Um, I want to, again, uh, just offer a special welcome to our Advent offering recipients from Telos today, from DC Wise One. Um, it is such a privilege to host you today um, and to just be able to support the incredible work that you do, to hear about it, um, and support you in this really small way. So we're really privileged and honored to have you. Well, if you weren't able to join us last week, um, we are at the beginning of an 11-week series. It's called Learning to Live. Okay, so Learning to Live is a semester-long curriculum written for Christ City by our very own Pastor Justin, right? Um, mm -hmm. So he shared uh, more about the, more details about um, what the next semester will be like last week in his sermon. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I would encourage you uh, to do that. So we're going to be engaging with learning to live as a church together in a few ways, okay? So you can do this individually through weekly devotionals. You can find um, these devotionals at learningtolive.app has its own website. Listen, we're fancy here, okay? You can find it at learningtolive.app, or if you would prefer a hard copy, like on paper, bound. Um, we do have a few of those. You can find them at the connection table um, after service. There's like a little um, QR code for a suggested donation if you're able to do that. Um, so, we're, so there's a workbook. There's work throughout the week. Um, we're going to be preaching through each Learning to Live topic every Sunday through Easter. So you'll hear it here as well. And then most of our small groups uh, will be following along with both the sermons and the curriculum, which all go together. So I just, you know, want to make another plug for small groups. This is a great time uh, to visit one or a couple. Um, take the opportunity to see what it's like. Connect more deeply with other folks at Christ City. Um, if you're interested in a small group and just trying one, um, write it, write small groups on your connection card, or you can come find me, you can come um, find a small group leader, any of the staff will point you in the right direction. We would love to help you get connected to a group um, and for you to join us in learning to live for these next few weeks. So I, I wanted to just give you a, a let you in just a little bit on why we're doing this, why we're doing learning to live together right now. Um, I think it might seem like a big lift. It's a big ask. It's almost three months long. There's like workbook, online type deal. There's five devotionals that you can engage with during the week. There are small groups to be prepared for, um, spaces to be vulnerable in. Um, there's some additional group experiences that we're going to do as a church, like storytelling. We're going to do a prayer retreat. We're going to have a service day. Um, so we know that you're busy and that an ask for your time is a big ask. I just want to acknowledge that. And so I want to be clear about the why of, of what we're asking, where we're headed for the next couple of months, because I get that it could just feel like another thing that we're trying to like pile on your already very full plates, okay? We are doing this with the goal of discipleship, 
It's discipleship. We want to create the opportunity for discipleship in an intentional, full church way this year, the beginning of this year. Discipleship is the goal. That's the goal. Now, I recognize that that word discipleship could hold many meanings, um, depending on if you, whether or not you've heard that before, um, and if you have, what context you've heard it in. So for the sake of clarity, um, a simple definition of discipleship would be um, to follow Jesus, to get behind him with our lives, with our whole selves, and go wherever Jesus leads, following Jesus. The questions that we're asking when we talk about discipleship, what does it intentionally mean? What does it mean to intentionally center Jesus in our lives? And then there's another question, what does it mean to intentionally center Jesus in our church? They're connected and they're also individual. Because discipleship is a whole life-shaping pursuit. And it's a whole church-shaping pursuit. We don't pursue Jesus alone. Um, and it, it changes our whole lives. It takes our whole lives. It will change the trajectory of our lives and the trajectory of our church. It has an undeniable effect on our lives, on our church, on the world, and how we show up in the world. Because we believe in a holistic gospel that Jesus and the Jesus way has something to say about every aspect of life. And so discipleship is at the central, is the central aim of everything that we do and try to do at Christ City. And without it, our community amounts to like a fun social club. And listen, there's nothing wrong with a social club. I like having fun with y'all. Karaoke a couple of years is still one of my very favorite memories, okay? Um, there's nothing wrong with a social club. There are benefits to those, for sure. And that's not our goal. That's not our end goal. We are aiming to be a community that is centered around Jesus. That's really specific, and it takes intention. We are aiming to grab hold of the hope and the life that Jesus promises and to see the effects of it in our lives and in the world. So we're here at the beginning of a new year. In a lot of ways, um, I think that we're still struggling as we bear the weight of 2023, sort of what we're bringing in with us with all its cynicism producing events and difficult things to understand. And here we are standing at the beginning of 2024 with all of its uncertainties, the unknowns that we just can't picture yet, and with also some of the things that we do know. Um, it's an election year. Um, and election or not, we know that hard things await us in 2024 that we just don't know. So what does discipleship even mean? What does it even look like in the face of these things? How do we follow Jesus in the middle of turmoil, in the face of injustice and literal war, in grief and sickness and stress and change and all of the, the regular things in our lives? This week, which is technically week one of Week two of learning to live, week one of the work. I made it confusing. I'm sorry. There's a calendar. I'll send it to you all. <laughs> but this week, um, you're going to have the opportunity to consider some simple questions about Jesus, about who Jesus is, 
what Jesus is about and what that means. Our scripture for today that we heard read is from Matthew 4. It's the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And this week's theme, this week's learning to live theme is an invitation, an invitation. That's also the title of this sermon. And today, I, I want to remind us of Jesus's invitation. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe you're hearing it for the thousandth time, and it feels like the first time. Or maybe it doesn't. But together, um, I'm wanting us to enter a conversation about what Jesus is inviting us into. Now, in full transparency, um, I, I, as I prepared this week, I think that I've projected some of my own need um, for these reminders in myself onto this sermon. I am feeling the need to be reminded of what Jesus is calling me to do. What is Jesus inviting me to do? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my community to ask the basic questions about what it means to be a disciple and explore those with my people? So the structure for the sermon today is very simple. We're going to look at the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 4, and we're going to consider two questions. What is the invitation of Jesus, and how do we respond? Pretty basic, pretty simple, but my hope is that this is the beginning of a conversation we're going to have together, that maybe somewhere in there you need this reminder, that we need this reminder, and that we can... Uh, explore these questions together. So, what exactly is Jesus' invitation? What is it? Let's go back to our scripture and remember together. So this is Matthew 4, 18. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So the concept of discipleship is not a new idea. It's not like something that like we invented in American Christianity. Um, it was a well-established concept in the Jewish cultural context of Jesus' time. So a disciple or a follower of a particular rabbi, teacher, would be expected to leave his family and job to join the rabbi and live with them 24 hours a day, walking from town to town, teaching, working, eating, studying together. So a disciple's goal was to learn by emulating the rabbi's every move. So not only by listening and learning, but to emulate. And there was a, there's a popular blessing back then that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So the expectation was that a disciple would follow so closely behind the teacher that they would like catch the dust that the rabbi's feet kicked up. So this is what Jesus is inviting these first disciples to do, to follow him, to follow him wholly and fully with their lives. Follow me. Come, follow me. The invitation. But that's also not the whole invitation. 
So Jesus actually gets more specific about what he's going to teach them to do. So it's verse 19 again. And he said to them, follow me, come follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. Another version of the Bible has a more like popular translation of this verse, which is come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you commit to learning from me, this is what you're going to learn how to do. Follow me so you can learn how to do this. I will make you fish for people. So what does that mean? We're just asking questions today. What does that mean? So the scripture passage here is used, I think, most commonly when we're talking about evangelism which is like the word for when you're telling other people about Jesus, like sharing with them, bearing witness to, um, to Jesus so that other people might experience Jesus for themselves and follow him too, right? And I think this tracks in what Jesus' invitation entails. The call to follow a rabbi was meant to multiply followers. Like a disciple would follow a rabbi long enough to be able to become a rabbi themselves and then they'd get their own followers, sort of like this multiplying thing. And we, we see this call of Jesus echoed in the Great Commission, his command to his disciples after his death and resurrection, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, that, that tracks. Go, make disciples. Fish for people. And maybe Jesus is saying more. Maybe here he's, he's being more specific about what he's going to teach them, what a life of learning looks like, what it means to fish for people. This week, at the encouragement of Pastor Justin, um, I went down a biblical studies rabbit trail um, on the contextual background of the fishing industry and economy in the New Testament. Um, super fun. Um, actually very interesting, not my norm. Um, so bear with me here. Um, I know we only have a short amount of time, so I promise I'm not going to just dump a bunch of like charts and stuff, um, and economics on you, but I do want to share some of it with you and I'm not an expert. So that's just my disclaimer. Here we are. So I, I want to share some of it with you. I, I came across, um, multiple articles and pieces based on this very fascinating research of um, a scholar and professor named Casey Hansen. And uh, Casey Hansen wrote an article over 20 years ago describing the socioeconomic and political context of Jesus's ministry, including this encounter with the first disciples. So as we say often, it is important to make a distinction between our context and the context of the New Testament. And like, you know, mind the gap. There's a gap there. Okay, they're different. So the fishermen in this story were not like participants in a free enterprise system. Like, I think that that's an easy thing for us to think. Again, cultural gap. Um, so at this time, the fishing industry in this particular area would have been fully under the control of the Roman Empire, okay? All fishing would be state-regulated for the benefit of the wealthy urban elite who did not live in the actual fishing community. So Simon, Andrew, James, and John that we see in this narrative, they would have been part of like a family fishing enterprise, okay? And 
that enterprise would be under the thumb of the empire. A license would be required to fish, um, and Rome collected taxes on every fish that was caught in the Sea of Galilee. And most of the fish that were caught were actually exported out of the communities that they were caught in, and the system just exploited and deprived these local communities who had no choice but to participate in the system to survive. This was like the resource that they had that was wanted. So this is the context of the fishermen Jesus first calls to follow him and learn how to fish for people. This is the, the economic, socioeconomic context. Um, I also read some of the works of um, another theologian and biblical historian named Ched Myers. And he, um, in his studies, he writes that the phrase fishing for men or fishing for people already actually had a long history for the Jewish people. That phrase already meant something. Now, Jesus, we know that Jesus knew the scriptures well, okay? And Myers suggests that Jesus actually may have been referencing prophets in the Hebrew scriptures who use that metaphor, like hooking a fish, as a euphemism for enacting judgment upon the powerful and wealthy who exploit the poor and the marginalized. So when Jesus invites Simon, Andrew, James, and John to learn to fish for people, maybe that means he's not just inviting them to make more disciples, which is true, I think, but maybe it's also to join him in his mission to overturn the existing social order of power and privilege and exploitation and to recognize that, as Matthew 4:17 says, the kingdom has come near and that the reign of God is at hand. And I think it's no wonder then that then we see in Matthew 4, verses 20 and verses 22, how it recounts how these, how these fishermen responded it says they immediately left their nets and their boat and their dad and followed Jesus. Immediately. The word immediately is in there twice. Immediately. Now, this passage has always carried like a little bit of guilt for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the first disciples were so eager to learn from Jesus that they didn't even question it. They just like abandoned their whole livelihoods because they were so like, I don't know, holy, pious, like, Whatever it is that I'm not, because I don't feel like I'm ready to immediately like just leave all my stuff, you know? Maybe that's true. Maybe they were extra holy. I don't know. Um, but the invitation here that's given to them isn't just let's go make more disciples. I think that's a part of it. But it's also to learn how to right what is wrong, to somehow overturn the oppressive system that keeps them down. Maybe that's what the invitation to fish for people signals to them. Jesus wouldn't have had to explain the oppression of the empirical system to them, that it wasn't the way that things should be. They definitely knew that already. They lived in it. Again, family fishing enterprise, generational. They knew how the system worked and what was up they would be eagerly ready for something else, for a different kingdom, a different empire, one of liberation and peace. And Jesus was inviting them into it. And that was good news to them. That was gospel 
gospel, good news. That's why it was good news. Jesus' invitation is to belong to and actively live into the kingdom, the empire of God, which stands in very stark contrast to the reigning empire of the day, both theirs and ours. The kingdom of God is one of justice and mercy and abundance. In God's empire, there's no poverty, there's no fear. Mutuality exists among all. And Jesus consistently points to this throughout the gospel accounts, that the the reign of God lifts up and meets the needs of the poor and the marginalized instead of ignoring them or just exploiting them. That God in God's kingdom doesn't rule by force or coercion. Jesus consistently points to there is no room in God's kingdom for oppression. There's not room for that. That's not how it works. The invitation from Jesus is to join him in setting right the things that are wrong, to call out the empire for what it is and for what it does, to critique and overturn what empire does to people. In the last section of our passage from today, Jesus has invited the disciples. They've left their fishing gear to follow him. And then they travel throughout Galilee. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, people possessed by demons or having epilepsy or afflicted with paralysis and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So in this last section of our passage this morning, we see Jesus here on mission. And we're assuming the disciples are following him covered in his dust. We're assuming that because they've immediately left and followed him. So they've joined in. They've accepted this invitation, which means they're around. They're right there. When Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom, they're right there when he cures diseases and sicknesses. Now, diseases and physical ailments are prominent in the gospel accounts. We see Jesus cure and heal frequently in all the gospels. Uh, One preaching commentary I read this week reminded me that um, this was true because for many reasons, one of which being that Roman imperial structures and practices were bad for people's health. Some 70 to 90% of folks in Rome's empire experienced varying degrees of poverty from the very poorest to those who temporarily fell below subsistence levels. You would have limited understanding of hygiene, um, high social stress, poor water quality, um, high food insecurity, And where you could get food, it would have been low quality and limited quantities. These factors would result in widespread diseases associated with poor nutrition, blindness, muscle weakness, other things, and a lack of immunity. These kinds of diseases were death bringing in a world that required physical labor for survival. 
Now, we've studied healing in scripture several times over the last couple of years, um, both from the pulpit here and in other spaces like seminars. It's been really helpful. It's been eye-opening to recognize um, the ableist lens with which many of us have been taught to read the gospel healing stories. Um, And disability theologians remind us that Jesus' healing of physical sickness and disabilities doesn't mean that people with disabilities weren't or aren't whole, that there's like something that's inherently wrong with them. And we're reminded here that in in this context, that Jesus' healings are acts that repair the damage inflicted on people by the empire, whether directly or indirectly. And that Jesus' healings enact God's life-giving empire in restoring people's lives. Jesus' invitation is to follow him and learn to live in that kingdom, the kingdom that is marked by peace, by wholeness, by abundance, to learn to live there, to recognize it where we see it, and to participate in its ongoing arrival in the world. Jesus invites us to have peace and to make peace to have peace and to make peace. And this invitation was good news. It was good news to these first disciples. Oh my goodness, there's another way to live. There's a different kingdom that we can live in. There's a different ruler that we can live under. Another kind of kingdom and life to pursue. Good news. It was good news for them. And friends, I think as we consider what discipleship means for us, we got to consider our context, ourselves, um, our histories, all those things. I wonder, how is it good news for us? Is this good news for us? I'll tell you now, the good news of Jesus' invitation is not that we will be comfortable all the time. It is not that we will be safe from pain or loss or grief. Jesus' invitation does not promise us ease or like vending machine prayers or, you know, it doesn't mean that the kingdom is just for us or people who are like us in whatever ways that we would prefer. That's not what, how it's good news for us. I think, though, it is good news that we don't have to live for accumulation, either of stuff or power or both. That it's not the ultimate pinnacle of what it means to be human to have the most stuff and the most power. What a rat race. I think it's good news that Jesus cares about our thriving and the thriving of all humanity. That Jesus cares that we are all fed and that our needs are met and that we all have the opportunity to flourish in the way that we were meant to. It's good news that we're not alone. It's good news that the kingdom doesn't rest solely just on our shoulders. Jesus' invitation to follow includes a promise that he leads the way. Follow me and I will make you. I will make you fish for people. It's good news. We are invited into the rule and reign of God in every life and every sphere of life. And that empire is so, so good. 
So how do we respond to this invitation? Our second question. How do we respond to this invitation? Jesus proclaims it in this chapter of Matthew and similarly in the gospel of Mark. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Now, I think the word repent kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, Fair enough. It's been used for a long time um, in many ways to guilt trip. It's been weaponized. Uh, The Greek word that we translate as repent is metanoia. And it simply means a change of mind, to turn around and change your mind. Change your mind. Now, the root word for believe in Greek means to trust. To trust in something so much that you act based on that trust. Repent and believe. To repent is to turn from something and to believe is to go towards something else. Turn around, change your mind, and trust. Church, I, I, I think the Spirit is leading us today. I think that the Spirit of God has something for us here. I, I don't always feel that or say that. Um, I, I've just been really stirred by, um, by Jesus and what Jesus came to do as I've studied this week. I am stirred by the invitation from Jesus to be a part of a different kingdom, to live a different way. I am challenged by that. I feel the challenge for myself. I feel the invitation for myself and I feel it for our church. Saying yes to this invitation requires change in intention, yes. And the gospel has something to say about everything, about our lives, about the world. The gospel has something to say to the issues that we face in this city, the ones that seem impossible. I'm reminded even this morning um, by our Advent offering recipients that um, the gospel has something to say about war. The gospel has something to say about what it means to make peace. The gospel has something to say about hunger and unhoused people. The gospel has something to say to that. Jesus wants to change and heal and transform Jesus wants to do that in us, and Jesus wants to do that through us. And the invitation is to follow him, and he will make us into fishers of men, into people that recognize where the kingdom of God is, how the kingdom of God is moving, that we can be people who recognize it and see it and say, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I mean, it's good to call that out, right? And I think that we could do that a lot. If I ask every single one of you in this room, one by one, to say, tell me something that you see in your life or around you that is not the way it's supposed to be, you could all do it immediately. (laughs) Immediately, every single person. So we call that out, we do. But the invitation isn't just to do that. It's, It's to live a different way. It's to embody. We resist by living a different way by becoming fishers of men. That's how we stand in resistance to this. This is what Jesus is inviting us to do. Jesus is inviting us and Jesus is saying, follow me, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. It's for you and it's for everyone. What are we being called to consider this morning? Maybe God's meeting us here today. It's a new year. 
I don't know, it's time to think about your habits and your life. I don't know. What has resonated with you? Is there something stirring? Maybe you're considering this invitation from Jesus for the first time. I get it, it's a lot. Maybe you're in the middle of deconstruction or maybe you've just really struggled with disillusionment with good reason of faith of the church. Maybe it's been a while since you've considered or reconsidered Jesus's invitation and its implication in the current season that you're in. Friends, it's not a one-time invitation. I want to say that too. It's not a one-time deal. I love that um, we see Simon, who's also called Peter, have this like bookend experience of being invited by Jesus. Um, again, in the Gospel of, of John, um, this is like after they've been through everything. It's like towards the, it's like the end of the book. Um, after they've been through everything, Peter's seen all this stuff. He's been with Jesus. Jesus has died. Jesus has come back. Peter has denied Jesus and wept over it. And after Jesus has died and resurrected, Jesus comes back, reconciles to reconcile and restore their relationship in him. And at the very end, he extends this exact same invitation, follow me. Follow me. The invitation is consistent. Jesus is always asking. We are always learning to live. So friends, as, as, um, as I conclude our time this morning, I just, I just want to ask you to consider what would it look like to say yes to Jesus' invitation? It's a super simple question, and it's a really hard one, too. What would it look like to say yes to Jesus' invitation? What would it look like in your life? What would it look like in our church? Let's have this conversation. May it be difficult and real and life-giving as we talk about this and consider it together. I'd like to pray for us. Would you pray with me?